Alrighty, you guys can find your seat. Um, and as you're doing that, you can find your Bible. I'll be reading from 1 Peter 11 through 17. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, right outside this room to the left, there's Bibles there. They're there for you to take home if you don't have one. Um, so, oh, my name is Ava. If we haven't met, um, I'm a student leader. So, uh, 1 Peter verse 11 through verse 17. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, sorry, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I'll pray for us. God, we just thank you that your word is truth and that we can rest in that. And I just pray that tonight we would continue to align our hearts and our lives to you as the cornerstone. And yeah, spirit, I just ask that you would speak through Ronnie and um, you're the only one that can soften our hearts. And I just pray that we would have an open mind to what you are going to teach us tonight and that we would grow to know you more. Amen. All right. Thank you, Ava. So that's First Peter 2. If you're not there, if you want to turn there, my name is Ronnie, one of the pastors at Doxa, and then I direct Salt Company. Excited to teach you guys tonight. If you are new and just jumping in, we're like right in the middle of a series through the book of First Peter, verses 11 through 17 tonight. And as we've been talking about, like one of the, the big parts about Salt Company is not just Thursday night, but this thing we do called Connection Group. And so who here's uh, at least been to a Connection Group before? Raise your hand if you've like been to one, you know a leader. Okay. So at the beginning of this message, what I want you to do with me is I want you to imagine that you're at Connection Group. Okay. And you're at, uh, your Connection Group meets at Chadbourne. Is that what it's called? Is there a place called Chadbourne? So it's the one over by uh, Bascom, right? Nicholas? Yeah. By Bascom? Okay. So you're at your Connection Group meets at Chadbourne. There's like 10 of you piled into this dorm room. Um, but as you're, as you're meeting for a connection group, you, you kind of shut the door and you're all keeping pretty quiet because you don't want anyone to hear what you're talking about or they don't, you don't want them to know what you're doing in the room for a connection group. Okay, so you meet together, you're, you're talking about life, you're encouraging each other about what God's teaching you, you're praying each other, you're you're strengthening each other in your faith. And then as you wrap up your time together, you're kind of in the, the circle. Your heart feels strengthened. You feel like you've got the boost that you need in your week to keep following Jesus. And then you kind of quietly slip out the door because, again, you don't want anyone to, to see you. And you actually head over towards Bascom because you live in Lakeshore. Okay, so you got the long walk over Bascom. It's nighttime. It's like 9 o'clock, maybe Monday night or something like that. You're, you're walking towards Lakeshore and and as you walk towards uh, Bascom, you start to get this pit in your stomach feeling. 
Okay, it's, it's the feeling of fear and dread. And it's not like the, the dread and the fear of like you're, you don't want to climb up the hill and you'll get too tired or it's not like you're afraid of the dark. It's because you're afraid of what you're going to see when you get to Bascom Hill. You're dreading not just what you're going to see, but potentially who you're going to see. Okay, but you keep on walking. You start to think in your mind about some of the scripture that you talked about with your connection group and you're silently praying to yourself just under your breath uh, for God to give you the strength to face what you know that you're about to see on the hill. And as you round the corner in the dark, you can actually see it just far off in the distance, just kind of faintly you, you can start to see them. And you're not close enough yet to make out any faces, but you see just like the, the glowing light or what's left over of it from the flames. And as you walk closer, you, you start to take some small comfort in the fact that at least you can't hear them anymore. And so as you walk up Bascom Hill, as much as you want to keep your head down and just kind of not look and, and just walk up the hill, you know that you have to at least look up and see. And sure enough, in the dark, you look up and maybe just to your left and you look and you see there your friend. Okay, and it's that friend that you'd actually notice they weren't at connection group tonight. The friend that you've been faithfully following Jesus with. Hanging there, body limp, head down, off to the side. You see just like the charred remains from the flames. They've been crucified. Okay, and it's too dangerous for you to linger there and look because someone could see you and think it's suspicious, right? So you, you keep on walking, you keep your head down, and you're, you're just trying to get to the top of Bascom so you can get over to the lakeshore side, and you're passing dozens and dozens of other students who just this week have been nailed to these poles and burned and martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. If that was what we were facing how would your faith hold up, okay, in circumstances like that? I mean, seriously, ask yourself, would you, do you think if that's what it was like on our campus, you would still choose to follow Jesus? Would he be worth the risk for you? Okay, and praise God that that is not our current reality here in 2021 in Madison, Wisconsin, but actually around the world, there are Christians that face violent persecution for their faith, and if you're new to Salt Company, you just kind of showed up, and this is the, the opening story, I'm uh, welcome. Here, here, we, here we are. This, that might not have been the best sales pitch to, to get you to come back. And, I, and I don't, I'd much rather start the sermon with like a, a joke or something, but, um, and not something so dark. But this kind of illustration I just used, this was actually close to the reality of what the original readers of First Peter were facing. Okay, Peter, he wrote this during the first century, the first generation of the Christian church. And these, these Christians, they lived in Roman-occupied territory under the reign of this emperor named Nero. Okay, and there's been a lot of frustration just in our own country, in our own time this year, like across the political spectrum, right, with our government and our leadership. And there's this unrest. And, and honestly, there is like increasing pressure on Christians in, in America but let me just put Nero into perspective for you, okay? So this Emperor Nero, 
AD 54 to 68 is when he was reigning. And I just have like an like a article that I was reading about him. I'm just going to read you from it because it explains his life. And the, the title of it was just Savage Madman. Okay, so this is, this is Emperor Nero. Nero, a man with light blue eyes. Okay, so they're going to help you picture him. So picture him, this guy with light blue eyes, a thick neck, protruding stomach, and then spindly legs. Okay, so picture this guy. Light blue eyes, thick neck, protruding stomach, spindly legs. He was a crazed and cruel emperor. A pleasure-driven man who ruled the world by whim and by fear. And it it just goes to show the difference that an upbringing makes. Because his mother, the plotting Agrippina, Agrippina is her name, she managed to convince her husband Claudius to adopt her son Nero and put him ahead of Claudius' own son, first in line for the throne. Okay, so she was power-hungry. And it goes on to say, maternal concern not satisfied. She then murdered Claudius, her husband, and then Nero ruled the world at age 17. Okay, so freshman in college age. The young Nero, having been tutored by the servile philosopher and pedophile Seneca, was actually repulsed by the death penalty, but he resourcefully turned this weakness into a strength. He eventually has his mother stabbed to death for treason, his wife Octavius beheaded for adultery, and then it says he took Octavius's head and displayed it for his mistress, Papia, whom he later kicked to death. And then it says the Senate made thanks offerings to the gods for this restoration of public morality. Okay, so that was, that was public morality in their day. Nero just exemplified it. That was their country. This is what the Christians were living through. And it says, unfortunately, that is but the bloody tip of a spear of the treacherous iceberg of Nero's reign. Yet such activities, they actually overshadowed the few constructive things he attempted, albeit without success. You know, the abolition of indirect taxes to help the farmers, the building of a Corinthian canal, the resettlement of people who had lost their homes in this thing called the Great Fire of Rome in 64 AD. And that Great Fire in Rome, it's really important because basically what happened is there was this big fire that burned down Rome, and Nero, it says, he tried to pin the blame for the fire on the city's small Christian community. Okay, and so appropriately, because he, he blamed the fire on them, it says he burned many of them alive, including the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament. They were said to be martyred as a result. But then here's the kicker. The rumor has it that it was actually Nero that lit the city on fire. And it was said that he was seen singing this poem called The Sack of Troy, And while he was enjoying the bright spectacle that he ignited, he went about singing. And and this wasn't unreasonable for Nero because for years he had made a fool of himself by publicly playing the lyre and singing, literally commanding that everyone watch him in his performance. And then the end of Nero, it just says, political turmoil finally forced this troubled emperor to commit suicide. His last words were, what a showman the world is losing in me. Okay. So that guy... That's, that's the emperor that in this text tonight that Peter is referring to. This is the context into which Peter writes verses 11 and 12. Look back down with me. He says, beloved, he's talking to the Christians. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, so in the face of this climate of persecution and pressure that they were living under, how does Peter tell them to respond? He says, beloved, remember this world is not your home. You're exiles here. 
You will be misunderstood, even persecuted for your faith. But I urge you, your fight, it's not against the Roman government. Okay, it's against the passions of your flesh, the sin that's in your own soul. To paraphrase, he says, I I urge you to live these good and honorable, even beautiful lives in front of the whole world, that they may see your good deeds. And one day, when God sets everything right in the end, in this broken world, they'll actually glorify him when they look at your life. Okay, so Peter, he doesn't tell them to fight back and like try to overthrow the government. He doesn't tell them to flee and hide their faith from the world. He doesn't tell them to give up or give in to the culture. What he tells them instead is to be resilient. Okay, we, t- we titled this study through 1 Peter, Resilient Faith. And the dictionary definition of that word, resilient, it simply means to withstand or recover quickly from difficult conditions. To withstand or to recover quickly from difficult conditions. That's what resilient means. And so Peter, he's urging them, he's urging these Christians to live with this resilient type of faith in a hostile world. Right? A faith that stands firm and is even strengthened when it's tested. If you remember back what he said in in chapter 1, look at verse 6 of chapter 1. He said, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's call to these Christians is for a resilient faith, a faith that gets stronger when it's tested by the fire. Okay, but here's the thing. For us right now, like honestly, there, there really are serious threats coming to like religious liberty in America and in our future as Christians in America. And we're not quite there yet, but you can kind of see it looming on the horizon. It's gonna happen in our lifetime. It is gonna get more and more uncomfortable to be a Christian, it is. But for us right now, the main threat that we face is actually something more subtle and seductive. And it's just this, this temptation to be cool and to remain comfortable. Okay, right now, the main threat to your faith isn't religious, violent persecution, but peer pressure. That's the main threat. And so here's, here's a question I think just like as modern college students in America right now that should haunt us as Christians, and it's this. If we fold under peer pressure right now, how will we hold up under persecution if and when it comes in the future? And this is why in First Peter, like he, he's urging us to start cultivating a resilient faith now. Okay, this is where he's going and really the whole rest of the letter. He's trying to help us to know how to live out this type of faith, this resilient faith in Jesus Christ. And so for the rest of this sermon, we're going to look at verses 13 through 17 and just look at three aspects, okay, three aspects of what resilient faith is. How do we live with resilient faith in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile toward followers of Jesus. Okay, number one, resilient faith is obedient. Look at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Okay, so again, put yourself in the shoes of these early Christians. Do you see what Peter's telling them to do? You remember who Nero is? Peter is telling them to be subject to the authority of the government that was persecuting them. He's saying obey Nero and his governors. You know, and like this year, like, like maybe you didn't 
love all of the different mandates and things that came out because of COVID, but they weren't killing us. This is what these, these Christians were facing. And so why in the world is Peter telling them to obey this government? Okay, he gives a couple reasons. The first one, he says in verse 14, he says, ultimately the government, it was uh, appointed by God, it's supposed to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Okay, it's this authority that is given to human government by God. And this was true in their time. Like there, there were laws in place by the Roman government that were an attempt to help the community flourish. And God commands his people to participate in that, to subject themselves to that authority. And we could give like a million different examples of this today of just, there are plenty of laws, right, that truly do aim, right, at punishing evil and promoting good. And, and you can disagree with like a, like a particular political strategy for it, but that's not a good enough reason to not subject yourself to the authority of the government because it's given to us by God, okay? So Peter, he tells them that. He says, obey because it honors the God-given role that the government plays in our world, even if it gets carried out imperfectly. Okay, so you might not agree with every single law or decision or policy or strategy, but Peter's saying as Christians, you still need to be subject to it because God put it there. All right, so that's number one. But number two, the second reason he gives for obeying the government is that he says it's ultimately a way that you're actually obeying God. Verse 13, he says, be subject, what? For the Lord's sake, okay, to every human institution. And then if you look down at verse 15, he says, for this is the will of God. Okay, so to get like really practical, if you cheat in school, you're not just breaking school policy, you're actually dishonoring God, Peter would say. Okay, if you drink underage, you're not just breaking the law, you're going against the will of God. Okay, it's, it's pretty simple, right? It's, it's simple. It might not be easy all the time to subject yourself to these different authorities, but it's simple. But I do think like this question arises for us, okay? And this is the question. What if the government or my school or my parents or whatever the authority is are asking me to submit to something, to do something, that causes me to disobey God. What do I do then? And you know, my first thought for you on this is actually that this is a great reason why some of you out here need to make it like your ambition in life, your holy ambition in life to go out into the world, into all these different spheres of society, like into higher education, into the government and bring like a godly influence into that space. Because Peter's saying like God has ordained these human institutions and these authorities to actually do good in the world and to do his will in the world. And we need Christian influence in those spaces to actually influence them toward that. There's this guy named William Wilberforce. You should, if, you're, if anything I'm saying is kind of like planting a seed and you're like, yeah, I want to go out, out in the world and do that. You should look up this guy named William Wilberforce. Okay, this is what it means to be the salt of the earth. Salt company, like to, to be the salt of the earth is to get scattered out into the world, every sphere of society, and bring like the positive and preservative influence of God with you into that place. Okay, so this, this tension we live in, that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that Peter, he for sure knows that this is a tension. He knows that these Christians are facing that. They're facing literal violent persecution in Rome. And so he basically gives them some criteria to navigate this. Look back at verse 16 and 17. This is what he says. He says, okay, so this is what you do. You live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. 
And then look what he does. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. He's talking about Christians. Fear God, honor the emperor. So he's, he's kind of giving them like this grid to work through. He says, your primary allegiance is to God. You are his servant. He is the primary and ultimate one that you are to obey. He says, you're to fear God. You're to honor the emperor. Okay, fearing God, it means to worship him alone. It means you don't just honor him. It means you honor him more than anyone else, right? We don't, we don't fear and worship the emperor. We don't fear and worship the president. We don't fear and worship the governor. We don't fear and worship our mom. None of these humans deserve that term fear. You fear God alone, but then because you're worshiping God, you honor those he's placed in authority over your life. Okay, you honor them because they're just humans, right? They're humans made in the image of God, worthy of a certain measure of honor, but then you also honor them according to the authority that he's put over you. Okay, so real practically, if your dad tells you that you need to get a job this summer, and you are like still living under his authority, what do you need to do? Get a job this summer, Will. You need to get a job. If the president of the university tells you that you need to get a COVID test, you're gonna go into that room. Is it dark in these rooms that you go into? I, always, I try to picture you guys. You, go, you, go, you gotta go into the room and you gotta drool, drool in the corner, right? You're just in the, everyone's in there like zombies just drooling. You do that, you submit. You do that. If they tell you to do it, you get your app out, you drool. If the federal government one day tells you to pay taxes, what do you do, Dylan? You pay your taxes, Dylan. Thank you. But here's the thing. Peter would say this. When you're faced with a choice of either obeying God or obeying a different authority figure in your life, what do you do? You obey God. You're his servant. Okay, so if your mom has started to notice that you are really starting to prioritize the kingdom of God, kind of like in a scary way in your life, like your, your values are shifting, your life decisions are maybe shifting, and it's because Jesus has gotten a hold of your heart, and you're starting to value his kingdom, and there's starting to be some friction and some tension in there, you need to, to figure out, what does it look like for me to honor my mom? But what does it look like for me to serve my king? Okay, if the university at some point tells you that you can't share about your faith in Jesus, you need to obey God and tell people the gospel. You know, our Japan team, they, they've been in, they were in, in China at one point where it was literally, you couldn't have churches like legally there. You couldn't share the gospel legally. And you know what they did? They started a church. Yeah. And it's, there, there is religious freedom in Japan though. So they're going to do that. They're going to do that legally. But th this whole thing, guys, like it gets even bigger scale than this. This was like the tension that Martin Luther King Jr. was, was living in. He looked out at America, and during the civil rights movement of the 60s, he saw that there are unjust, ungodly laws in place that discriminate against people based on their race. And so he leads this whole movement of civil disobedience against the government. It was nonviolent, but it was disobedient to the government because he says we have to obey God. We have to align the laws in this country more with the will of God. Okay, and so some of these scenarios we talk about, they might happen, but there's something that Peter's actually a little bit more concerned about with these Christians. He's concerned that they will use their allegiance to God as, in verse 16, he says, a cover-up for doing evil. Okay, using their freedom in God 
as a cover for doing evil. So it's like this. It's like you and your, your other 19-year-old friends, you decide that drinking beer together is a great way to connect relationally, and you get in some great talks about life and about God, and you even pray together, and it's honestly, it's like a really encouraging time in the faith. And you know what I would say to that? I agree. It is. It, it is nice. It is, it is enjoyable to enjoy the gift of beer with your friends. It aids conversation. It's great. But it's illegal to drink alcohol if you're 19. That's what the law is right now in this country. And so the fact that you're talking about Jesus and that you're praying while you're doing it doesn't mean you're not subject to the law. So that would be an example of using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. You're free to serve God. You're not free to break the law. Okay, so the bottom line for Peter here is he's saying like a resilient faith in a world that's increasingly hostile to faith, it's an obedient faith. Christians should be known for their obedience, their, their ability to submit under authority, the way that they honor the authorities that God puts in their life. And so we should be good citizens of our country. We should be good members of like the campus community and the only acceptable time to disobey the government or any other human authority is if they're asking you to directly disobey God. But Peter, as he writes this, he's not saying, you know, Christians, when people look at you, I want them to just look and say, what amazing rule followers. What nice people. I just, I just love the way that they follow the rules. Like, how lame would that be? That's not what Peter's calling him to. He's saying, when people look at you, I want them to say, what compelling, beautiful lives. What beautiful lives. And that's the next thing that he says. Resilient faith is compelling. Okay, look back at verse 12. It says, keep your conduct or your, your manner of life among the Gentiles honorable. The, the real word there is beautiful. Keep your manner of life among the Gentiles beautiful so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Okay, so Peter, he, he's saying, live such beautiful lives among the world that in the end, they can only attribute it to God. And then in verse 15, he says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put into silence the ignorance of foolish people. So just think about some people in your life right now that have, have an ability to look at your life, people that aren't Christians, okay, people, that he's, he's using the word Gentiles here, which would have been not Christians in that day. They're looking at your life. What would they say about the conduct, the manner of your life? Okay, what, what are the words that they would use to describe you? And, and if you've been a Christian for any number of years, you've experienced some level of being misunderstood, some level of being opposed for your beliefs. But Peter thinks we should also be compelling people with the beauty of our lives. That's what he thinks should happen when somebody looks at a Christian. He's saying even if they speak against you as evil or they don't understand you, your good life should eventually leave them speechless with nothing to say. Okay, that's why back in verse 11 he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. The passions of the flesh. Let's take like jealousy as an example, okay? Jealousy is one of those, those sins, one of those passions of the flesh. Now, track with me on this. It like, it feels so like good when it's in, internal in you. Like it, not, maybe not good, but it feels like it's this thing that's screaming for you to let it out. It's just like you, you have to. It's, it's telling you you have to let it out. It feels so good. It feels so right. But then when you let it out, when you say that, that jealous thing, 
it is so ugly, right? When you say, when you say the jealous thing, it comes out of your mouth. I remember just like a, a week ago, I was driving in my car and I had a, a moment of jealousy earlier in the day and by the grace of God, I didn't say it in the moment and I, I was kind of like, oh, I'm, just, I'm not gonna say it, I'm not gonna say it. And then I got in my car and I was processing it and I said it out loud and it was horrible. It was gross. It was ugly. And Peter is saying that people should look at our lives and not see like the ugliness of the passions of the flesh, but the beauty of what it means to be the beloved people of God. Okay, he's not calling us, like giving us this compelling call to be nice. He's not calling us to blind submission. He's not calling them to just this like kind of bland life. He's calling them to be compelling. He's calling them to a life that can't be overlooked, a life that demands an answer. He says, you're, you're free. Look at verse 16. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living, leaning into your life as a servant of God. He's calling them to live a life that is like a beautiful, compelling alternative to a watching world. So here, here's maybe a scenario that might come up in your life. Back, this is, we're going to go back to the underage drinking example. Here's a scenario. You're out with your friends on a, on a Friday night. You're all underage, and they want to drink alcohol. Okay, there's, there's basically, there's two options that we usually take, but there's a third one that Peter would encourage us to take. Okay, the first one is we basically just cave to the pressure and we say yes. Okay, they ask us if we want to drink, and we give in to the, to the passions of the flesh. We, we disobey the law. We cave in to the pressure, and we just say yes. That's, some, that's something that we do. The second option is we say no, but then we give like a, a boring reason for why or like no reason for why. And, and they're like, well, why don't you want to do it? And you're like, well, there's these rules and there's this Jesus and he wants me to be nice and I'm just not supposed to do that. And they're like, why aren't you supposed to do that? And you're like, I don't even know. And then, and then it's just kind of, it's just, it's just kind of like you don't, you don't, it's like this, it's like, well, Peter would say, don't do that. He says, when they, when they look at your life, they should be compelled. And so here's the third option. Here's what, here's what we can do as Christians. We don't say yes. We don't say no with a boring, nah. we say no and then we follow it up with a compelling yes to Jesus. Okay, you, ha- you have a firm no, but then you have a compelling yes because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and you, you stand up and you say, I don't, I, the reason I'm not gonna do this is because I don't, I don't need this to have a good time. Sure, once I'm of age, like beer is a good gift to, to enjoy, but I'm a servant of the king, and so I'm gonna obey him by obeying this law, and I don't need to sacrifice my integrity to have a good time or not. I can have a good time without this. You say no, and then you have a compelling yes to Jesus. This is, this is what Peter's talking about. When you see Christians, they're, they're compelling. They have this beautiful alternative life that they offer to the world. Okay, but we know this. Sometimes beautiful things in this world are labeled as evil, right? They're misunderstood, and, and sometimes they even get beat up and in Jesus' case, murdered. Okay, Isaiah 53 says of Jesus that he had no form or majesty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And so as, as sojourners and exiles in this world, we, we cannot expect to be fully accepted. And we should not expect to be received any better than our Savior was. So when, when you feel that, that peer pressure, that, that pressure to fit in and be cool, or the pressure to settle in and be comfortable, just know that it's never really going to last in this life. Jesus, he has us walking in a totally different direction. And that's why Peter, he's calling us to a resilient faith that is not anchored in how people perceive us, but in how God does. That's what he means in verse 17 when he says, fear God. He's saying, you need to live honorably toward all people. They need to be able to look at your life and see something compelling in it, something beautiful, something that actually draws them in. But in the end, you need to care most about what God thinks about your life because you're his servant. Okay, And one day, you're going to meet him face to face. And so that's the last one, guys. It's resilient faith is hopeful. Resilient faith is, is hopeful. Peter, he's, he's basically, he's trying to figure out, okay, how can I help these Christians be engaged, great citizens in like the evil Roman Empire, but without putting their hope in the Roman government or in Emperor Nero or in any attempt to like overthrow the Roman government? Right? He wants them to, to basically have both feet firmly planted in the ground, but both eyes focused on heaven. He's called this their, their living hope. So, so both feet on the ground, fully engaged in the world, but looking to the world that they are going to. Look at verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. When? On the day of visitation. Okay, the day of visitation, this is a reference to judgment day. Okay, the day that is coming when God, our creator, our supreme authority, he will come down to earth for a final visit. Can you imagine what that day is going to be like? Okay, if you read kind of the back half of the book of Revelation, you can actually see a vision that, the Apostle John had about what it's going to be like. But that day, it's the day when God will, once and for all, he's going to visit this earth and he's going to assume full and final authority over all of his creation. God is going to do what all the human governments throughout history have failed to do, what they've always failed to do. He's going to ultimately, as verse 14 says, punish evil and praise those who do good. But with perfect justice, with perfect judgment. Okay, in that day, there's going to be no more misunderstandings. Peter, he says that the world is going to look at the beautiful lives of the persecuted people of God and finally give God the glory that is due his name. The servants of God will be vindicated and the whole world will stand in silence. But this won't be the first time that God has visited us. Okay, Jesus Christ, he lived the most compelling and beautiful life ever recorded in human history. Even people like Gandhi, who didn't believe that he was God, just marveled at the moral integrity of Jesus, the, like the gritty, tough, but gentle and determined love, especially for his enemies, the wisdom of all of his ethical teaching. Jesus Apart from being God incarnate, he was good like no one had ever been before and never has been since. 
But as the prophet Isaiah predicted, he was despised and rejected by men and they esteemed him not. They didn't honor him or recognize him. They crucified him. Okay, when you think about it, and didn't his, his crucifixion really just highlight the utter failure and corruption of all human government and all human authority because he was the most innocent man that had ever lived? Okay, but between an unjust trial that he went through to the angry mob that shouted for his death to the mocking that he received as he hung on the cross, Jesus, he kept his mouth shut and his conduct honorable. And even though they spoke of him as an evildoer, they could not deny that they were witnessing something of the glory of God. Okay, the way that Jesus handled himself as he hung on the cross, it did eventually put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people who killed him. Until there was this moment where this Roman centurion he, that had executed him, he breaks the silence And he's just standing there at the cross after the dust has kind of settled and Jesus has died and he's hanging there. And he looks up at Jesus after he just witnessed the way that he had suffered with such humility and strength and love. And he says, surely this man was the son of God. In this moment, the cross of Jesus Christ, this was the first day of God's visitation. Okay, God, he broke into our broken world as the man Jesus Christ and he came to bring judgment on sin and salvation for sinners. Okay, on the cross, Jesus, he wasn't being punished for the evil that he had done. He was actually getting punished for our evil. His dying was in our place for our sin. Okay, do you know that yet? Has that truth sunk into your heart that, that Jesus Christ, what he's doing on the cross is he is not being punished for any evil that he had ever done. He's being punished for yours, for mine. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So you, individual person sitting in your seat, your sin, you will either pay for that on judgment day or you could ask Jesus to pay for it for you on his judgment day on the cross. This is what Isaiah 53 says. It says, He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Jesus Christ, he actually did come as a conquering king, but he didn't come to overthrow the Roman government, right? He came to overthrow Satan, who tempts us to sin and wages war against our souls, Peter says. He came as the true servant of God, the suffering servant, okay? The one who would stand in our place, die for our sins, heal us by his wounds, and then he rose from the grave. Jesus Christ, he rose victorious from the grave three days later, proving that he was no casualty of the Roman Empire. He was indeed the king of the world, the true authority. That's why for Christians, resilient faith, like our hope is never in any human leader or politician or government, but always and only in Christ, the king who hung on the cross, the king who rose from the grave. And so in your time at UW, it will likely in the next couple of years not get so bad that the government begins crucifying Christians on the side of Bascom Hill. But guys, even if it did, 
Peter's charge here would be the same. Okay, he, would, he would say to us, live as people who are free. Live as servants of God during the time of your exile. Servants of God, this is your identity. The world is not your home. Both feet are planted here, but you are looking towards your true home. The world is not your home, but you are free. And all the pressure and the persecution in the world, it cannot defeat your faith because yours is a resilient faith. It is indestructible, as indestructible as the Jesus Christ that you are united to. Okay, you have a a faith, you have a trust. What has happened in your heart if you're a Christian is you've been united to Jesus Christ in such a way that when the heat gets turned up, you actually get stronger. You become more compelling. And because of all of that, you focus more on your living hope. And so, listen to me. If you keep following Jesus, like if you, if you follow him for these couple years of college, and if you get sent out of here as the salt of the earth, and you follow him for decades and decades to come, I promise you it will not be easy. I really think it's going to start to get harder. I think it's going to be more uncomfortable to be a Christian. None of us are ever going to be as cool as we could have been in the eyes of the world because we chose to follow Jesus. But I promise you it will be worth it. It'll be worth it now. It'll be worth it forever because he is worth it. Who you have a chance to become in him is worth it. And the witness that your life has the potential to shine out into a dark world, it is worth it for them. So let's pray. Jesus, we, we come to you in a, a time of our lives where we are setting the trajectory for who we will be, who we will become, what we will do with this life that you've given us. And we thank you that we don't have to be the strong one because you are, you were. So Jesus, by faith, we, we unite ourselves to your strength, the, the strength of your death on the cross for our sins the strength of your resurrection from the grave. Jesus, we believe that your death was ours and your new life is ours. God, strengthen our faith tonight as we sing songs about you, about what is true, and our voices fill this room. Would you shift our eyes from this world to the next one, but would you keep our feet firmly planted on the ground? Because we have work to do here. So God, help us. Give us a... Give us a sight of your glory as we, as we sing. Make our faith, our trust in you, make our lives more resilient for the good of the world around us and for your glory. Amen.